Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you tonight. As always, we're going to be starting off here in just a moment or two uh, with another great discussion on Coach's Corner, and I've got a really uh, good panel tonight, so I'm really excited about that. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by my good friend, Mr. Byron Casper, uh, of course, son of legendary Billy Casper, uh, and he'll be joining me on the second half. I haven't had him on the show for a little while, so we're going to catch up a little bit and talk about some new things that he's working on uh, right now in the world of golf. So we'll see uh, how that happens um, on the second half of the show. But I just want to remind everybody, we are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And at the end of the show, in the closing credits, I'll give you some other great ways that you can tune in as well uh, to the show. And I uh, really appreciate you guys uh, tuning in live here at this time. I just want to remind everybody before I introduce the panel that uh, Golf Talk Live is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing top quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And of course, Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, offering insightful reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top PGA and LPGA teach professionals, all designed to help improve your game from tee to green. So subscribe today, go to golftipsmag.com, and you can get your subscription right there. Um, all right, as I mentioned, I've got uh, a great uh, a couple of uh, guests on the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, a regular on the on the panel, of course, is Jamie Leno-Zimron, and uh, she is a instructor, body worker, and consultant. She's also an Aikido six-degree black belt, uh, Class A LPGA teacher professional, a corporate and conference speaker, uh, also an executive trainer and coach. She's a speaker for Vistage International and TEC Canada, which, of course, stands for the executive committee. And joining us for the first time on the panel, who was a guest a couple of weeks ago, Alex Fisher, uh, PJ Director of Instruction at the Glacier Club in Colorado. Uh, he's originally from Nottingham, England, and moved to Naples, Florida back in 1999 to pursue a career in the golf industry at the Vanderbilt Country Club. Uh, both he and his wife, uh, Mary, later moved to Arizona to become a golf instructor uh, at uh, P- uh, Phoenix Country Club, TPC Scottsdale, and ultimately the Director of Instruction at TPC Las Vegas. Uh, currently in the winter months, you can find him as Director of Instruction at the JW Camelback uh, golf club in Scottsdale in Arizona uh, again during the winter months and he's now become a top 25 instructor with Golf Tips magazine so guys welcome uh, thank you for joining me tonight on uh, Coach's Corner Thank you Ted happy to be here and uh, be with Alex as well <laughs> Thank you All right. it's, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun tonight Alright I appreciate it Alright so so guys we're going to talk about just a few different things uh, tonight but uh, we're going to try to cover uh, a couple of different perspectives, if you will, and uh, I'll explain, you know, as, as normal as we go along. So one of the things that uh, I want to talk about is making good decisions uh, and the decision-making process. So, Jamie, I'm going to start with you, as I mentioned, and then, uh, Alex, I'll, I'll sort of 
uh, give you a little bit different uh, approach to this uh, question, if you will, uh, so that your answer will be a little bit different. Um, so before we hit every shot, Jamie, there's always several decisions that need to be made, uh, various different elements to take into account, factors uh, such as wind, flag position, uh, you know, maybe even grain if we're uh, on the uh, on the putting surface. Uh, a lot of things go in before we decide what uh, what's the best shot, uh, whether it be the shape uh, that we're going to hit, if it's going to hit a fade or we need to hit a draw, as an example, uh, and also uh, which club uh, are based on a lot of those factors. So I think it's always good to make those decisions early in the process, obviously, Uh, almost as soon, and sometimes that's not always uh, a lot of time, depending on on how uh, good you are. So, walk us through a little bit when you're working with your students, as an example, and uh, you're trying to help guide them in making good uh, decisions on whatever, whether it be off the tee or whether it be maybe a, an approach shot to a green. What's some of the discussion as you're maybe during a playing lesson that you might have with your students to help guide them in this direction? It's a really interesting area you're bringing up, Ted. And the first thing I just would like to say is that it so depends on the level of the student. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not just kind of a one-answer thing. So, for example, right. beginners, you know, beginners are really just learning about all the factors that you just mentioned, that they've got to think about those things. They also are learning the basics of, of shot making and also of, their distances for their clubs, um, they, they don't necessarily know those things or, this, you know, that all their clubs go the same distance in the beginning uh, for so many people. So, you know, I, in the beginning, it's really just kind of an educational process and, and being on the golf course and learning the types of things that go into selecting a club or, or starting to think about how to make this shot or where to place your shot, where, where you want to be on your drive, maybe what side of the the fairway depending on where your second shot is or where the pin is on the green, you know, all these kinds of things, or, you know, for short shots, is this a, you know, a little running pit, uh, chip shot? Is this something we've got to put some, some air into and get some height with a pitch shot? So, you know, so much is really just the basics for quite a while, actually. If you think about it, there are so many things that we as more experienced golfers, and not necessarily great golfers, but just experienced, used to being on the golf course to start to think about, right? And um, mm -hmm. so that's, that's just that process. After that, um, I think that it really is helping people to um, know what their, first of all, know what their distances are uh, and think about the placement of each shot and, and how it's setting up the next shot. Um, you know, if you're getting out of trouble, how do you do that? Um, course management you know i mean you may have to sacrifice something and just to get out with a bogey instead of a double bogey and that that's that's worthwhile that's worth it to do so you know again uh, and you know certainly with advanced players now that's where you really get into so many interesting issues about uh you know decision making mm -hmm. so i'm going to assume that you're going to ask some questions that go into those things further but i mean there's a, a real thought process that goes into um you know when when you're at, at higher levels, lower handicaps, competitive situations, risk reward, all these kinds of things start going into your decision making. Right. Well said. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jamie. Um, Alex, I'm going to um, talk to you a little bit from, a, again, a different perspective here than, than what Jamie just talked about. Um, obviously, that's more of the decision making process when we get on the golf course um, in any given round. But there's also decisions that have to be made 
um, off the golf course. And I'll give you a couple of examples, and maybe you can touch a little bit on each. Um, there's decisions that need to be made during a practice round um, or a practice session, let's say out on the practice tee or uh, on the lesson tee. Um, decisions had to be made there on what areas of the game that we need most practice on. So there's some decisions there. And there's also time, too, when we first show up for our round and we're just doing a general warm-up. There's different decisions. We're not going to necessarily get into a full-blown practice session when we're just warming up for a round. So touch on those areas. Um, what are some of the decisions that you try to guide your students uh, and the difference between just a general practice session and maybe just warming up for uh, the round that you're going to play in a few hours? Or, sorry, in a, in a, you know, a few minutes. Um, no, great question. Um, you know, I, I'm fortunate to work with students that are very familiar with the, the golf course that I teach at. So um, asking a lot of questions beforehand, uh, before we even start a practice session, and, and just asking them about previous rounds. Um, a lot of times they want to tell you what, all the, the good stuff that they did during that round, but for me, I'm more interested in the bad things that happened. And that can certainly direct the the, uh, the approach that we take when we come to, to practicing um, and, you know, I work with all different levels of golfers, so I have a very good gauge of their abilities. So um, just understanding what they can do and, and can't do on the golf course um, goes a lot into to, to the preparation that we do before we go out on the, the course itself. Um, but I, I try and take a, a, a holistic approach and try and work on as many different things uh, in a short period of time with each student. And so a lot of it will be working on lag drills uh, when it comes to putting first off. Um, I, I try and make my students go to the short game area first because if they don't and they go to the range first, they're typically going to work on full swing stuff and never get to the, to the more important stuff that they're going to face on the golf course itself. So we'll we'll work on a lot of lag drills. Uh, we'll work on some chipping drills in the sense of trying to figure out some ratios in terms of air distance versus roll distance just to gauge uh, um, the speed of the greens, not just for putting but for chipping as well and then we'll we'll try and recreate a, a lot of different situations that they would face on the golf course but not give them multiple tries to to execute these shots i think uh typically if you work with somebody and you give them four or five attempts um maybe their focus is not fully there on the first couple and then they they do kind of get it um back into gear and, and then really when we go over to the to the the full swing part of the range um, we'll warm up, we'll do some stretching through TPI and things like that, uh, and then really just kind of work through the bag briefly, but then go ahead and play maybe four or five holes, the first four or five holes they'll play on the course, on the range, trying to, to build kind of a, a consistent rhythm and cadence uh, for the swing that would be typical to what they would have on the golf course and not just hit, just pounding balls. And let me just ask a quick follow-up. And then, Jamie, I want to come back to you because I'm going to let you expand on what you mentioned a few moments ago. Um, Alex, dur during a warm-up, obviously this is not the time that you want your student to be tinkering around uh, with various parts of the golf swing. If they're getting ready to go out and play a few holes, this is where you really, as you said, you want to get the rhythm and you want to uh, find out you know, really what they've got to work with that particular day. So if they're fading the ball a little bit more or um, maybe not uh, you know, hitting it as solid, um, and maybe there's issues, whether it could be with the grip or what have you, you're not going to start during a warm-up session. You're not going to start tinkering, tinkering around with that. That's going to be during a, a more uh, detailed uh, uh, practice session, correct? 
Correct. Yeah, I think we 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 definitely play our best golf when we're more autonomous and we're we're not overthinking things. So unless things go really south uh, with the student before they go out and play, we're really just trying to identify what their ball flight tendencies are, and really you know what they're going to have to play when they go out onto the golf course instead of mm-hmm. trying to to fix it as they're going along. Well said. Uh, great answers, uh, Jamie. I want to come back to you on the same topic. Um, um, that I gave you earlier with decisions, and you talked about really risk and reward and, and that sort of thing for the more advanced players. Maybe expand a little bit about that because there is a difference for our beginning golfers and, and some of our novice golfers particularly. Um, they're not really uh, equipped at that point to really get into that sort of deep analysis or assessment process where our better players do. So maybe you can touch a little bit about that, about risk and reward uh, for our better golfers. Yeah, well, and I do just want to underscore that it's just such a different um, teaching and learning experience with different levels of players, um, and particularly mm-hmm. just that kind of basic uh, beginner novice level. But, you know, at more advanced levels, I think a couple things. One is it's, it's important to know a person's kind of psychological tendencies and preferences as well as things like their ball flight tendencies, their uh, go-to clubs, do they have favorite kind of uh, club or shot uh, people tend to have that, uh, certain certain clubs and shots that they feel more comfortable with, more confident with. Um, you need to know a person's comfort level with risk and reward. Some people, um, you know, are really like to go for it, yeah. Other people would be happier to lay up. So, for example, you know, let's take um, – you can see it even on tour when you're watching TV. You can see mm-hmm. if somebody is you – know, you, like you watch Phil, right? He's going for it. So he's a big risker <laughs> for rewards. Um, right, and, right. You know, I, you know, I think about – I forget what hole it is, but uh, par fives at Augusta, yeah. I mean, it's got the water right in front of it, and you can fly it and get there in two – so that would be the riskier shot. And then you've got other folks who um, maybe don't hit it quite so far, less comfortable with risk. They lay up, and they're very confident with their wedges that they can knock it up there and, you know, have a, um, you know, make birdie that way. So, you know, it just so much depends on a person's, uh, well, capabilities, right? You know, what's your distance? What are your mm-hmm. average dif- distances that you're comfortable with? Um, can you shape the shot uh, or not? Are you uh, more comfortable with kind of the the approach of fairways and greens and, you know, you're just going to kind of, you know, undramatically make your scores and take your birdies and maybe your eagles when you get them as opposed to really going for it. Um, so I think that you just really need to, to know a person's, um, in a sense, like I said, sort of their psychology and what mm-hmm. they're really comfortable with and confident with. Um, and then that can go into their history. Did they? What did they do in this situation before? Had they been in this situation? What worked for them? What are they willing to to risk um, or to go for or not in this situation? How do they want to play it? And these are some things that typically are really a part of the caddy player relationship. So your caddy, in if you're you know playing competitively in higher levels like that, ought to know you well and be able to kind of uh, discuss the situation, the shot with you, um, help you make your decision. So these are some of the things that mm. I think really go into the decision-making process at higher levels. And, you know, right. if you well want to said. push yourself, like if you haven't been in this situation and maybe, you know what, mm-hmm. maybe you aren't a risk taker and you say, by gosh, I'm going to do it this time. I want to see what happens. And, uh, you know, willing <laughs> to accept the consequences. So, you know, because you want to expand your comfort zone, you want to increase your capabilities, you want to have a new experience. So, you know, that can, that can be part of the decision-making process as well. 
Yeah, exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it, you know, again, it depends on your comfort level. It, it depends on uh, your ability as a player. Again, if you're a junior or a, a novice player that um, is just sort of learning the game, uh, you might want to be a little bit more conservative or a little bit more cautious uh, to begin with until you feel comfortable. And, and really, as you develop as a player, uh, you start to earn that confidence. You develop that confidence, and you uh, tend to want to take a little bit higher risk. You don't mind working a little bit more, uh, trying to shape your shots and things like that. But uh, to start out with, I think it's it's good to uh, to just get out there and and kind of get the flow and the feel of the swing and and uh, and and treat it like it's you know it's no big deal. And then as you develop as a player, then you can fine tune things uh, with the help of your with your coach. Um, great answers, guys, by the way. Um, Alex, I'm going to come back to you on this one. This is our next topic. Uh, we're going to talk about feel. Uh, and this is another area, um, and there's different areas really that we can talk about. But this one I want to talk about specifically because it kind of falls into with, with a little bit of your pre-shot routine and, and other areas as well. So I'm giving you a couple of examples, um, one being the pre-shot routine. And you want to make some practice swings, uh, you know, somewhere along the lines in that, just to kind of get the feel of the club and swinging the club head and, and so forth. Uh, and then the other, for maybe a, a more advanced player, particularly if there's a, you know, if you're somebody that has the ability to, to shape your shots a little bit, um, we often would see players like Tiger Woods as an example. All top players do it, but uh, you might see them where, uh, they'll actually swing sort of across their body uh, in preparation to hit a fade. So you'll see them sometimes they'll kind of hold the club off or uh, or they'll swing more from an inside to, to an out path if they're wanting to hit a draw. So um, there's a lot of different things, but it comes down to feel. And what they're trying to do is to feel that shot. So maybe talk a little bit about some of the examples I just gave is from a pre-shot routine, the importance of obviously establishing that feel. And then for those that are a little bit more advanced in their shot making um, what it is that they're trying to accomplish by uh, swinging in some of these different uh, formats. Sure. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the, the, the things that get overlooked when it comes to a pre-show routine is, is first off kind of the lie. Um, we can all have the, the intention of what we want to do, but what is the lie going to do? Uh, and what's it going to give us? And I think when you see a lot of these pre-show routines, uh, evaluating the lie, whether it's, it's sitting down or sitting up, but also if the ball's above your feet or below your feet or an uphill or downhill lie, just really kind of recognizing that first off, um, working with some of the amateurs, a lot of them don't realize sometimes that, that the golf course is not perfectly flat and you're going to have to deal with uneven lies. So recognizing what the lie is going to do first, that really kind of goes into next creating creating a feel for what the swing plane needs to be. If the if the ball's above your feet, obviously we need to make the plane just a little bit flatter. If it's below your feet, making it a little bit steeper, and just making lots of practice swings. I think um, I think also being able to visualize the shot that you you want to hit uh, that that goes a lot into to the feel of the swing itself. Um, re- Personally, working with with amateurs and not trying to shape the ball, just really trying to kind of advance the ball forward. Um, we practice a lot of those situations on the goal, uh, on the range itself. We'll, we'll go away from the tee mm-hmm. box, which is typically perfectly flat, and and go over to the side of the range or in, in different situations and and really just trying to get a, a sense of the adjustment that they need to make. Um, working with with better players, that then we do get a little bit more into the visualization <laughs> of the shots. Um, when you start to work with better players, you start to understand how the path and the face influences the ball flight and uh, working again on the range and, and really start to try and visualize shots, uh, trying to get the ball to curve around flags and things like that. 
Uh, we do a lot of that on the golf uh, on the range first before we really try and implement that on the the course itself. Well, and and you know, in addition to shaping the shot, uh, whether it be left or right, you know, there's sometimes you might want to have a need to hit the ball a little bit lower if you're coming into the wind, or uh, or maybe you're wanting to hit a little bit higher to take advantage of the wind. There's a lot of different scenarios, or uh, to get it up high over an obstacle like a, a small tree, or uh, shaping it around trees, as an example, sometimes might be uh, something you need to do. And for a more advanced player that has a, a higher skill level, um, those are things as a golf instructor that you want to work a little bit more aggressively with, uh, as you mentioned. Um, Jamie, uh, Alex kind of set us up for, for this one here, and that's the visualization. Uh, visualize, visualizing the shot before you play is probably one of the most important parts. Uh, seeing the shape in your head, visualizing the ball flight and trajectory sort of tells your, your brain exactly what you want to make the ball do uh, during its flight. And this is an area that a lot of uh, amateurs obviously struggle with is uh, they don't really take the time to visualize the shot um, as opposed to what our, our better players tend to do. So maybe you can just touch a little bit more about that. Uh, are there some things that you do uh, in your teaching that help people to, to better visualize what it is they need to do? Um, let's start with uh, amateurs or, or novice players. And then if you want to give some examples uh, of a more advanced player on, on some of the things that you might want to touch on. Well, for I think the underlying premise or principle that people need to get, and many people have heard it now, but it, it bears kind of underlining, underscoring, uh, is that our brain doesn't really know the difference between what we visualize and what we actually do, which is one of the ways that visualization works. So when we visualize our body, our nervous system, our muscles, you know, a uh, whole brain-body system has the experience. So um, that's, you know, that, that's just important to understand that premise. And, and it takes practicing. It's also important to realize that not everybody is very visual. So we can say mm -hmm. as a general rule that visualization is important. But some people really just aren't so visual. And I started to understand that when I would get kind of this frustrated, irritated responses from certain students that it's like they just they right. couldn't do it. They didn't want to do it. And it's like, oh, you're not really very visual. Okay, I get it. Um, that being said, it still is uh, obviously a valuable thing to do, and a lot of people are visual. And, you know, we're not just one or the other in terms of our, um, you know, sensory modes, um, <clears throat> you know, visual, auditory, kinesthetic. But um, to go back, I think, you know, with newer players, it's first just understanding the real difference between shots that are higher and lower when and why. You know, we're going into the wind or we've got uh, a lot of room on the green so we can run the ball up as opposed to fly it up. And, you know, um, you know going over a bunker or whatever, we've got to get it in the air. So, you know, it's really being able to see those things, to see where's the ball landing, where's a good landing spot, uh, how much is it going to run. Uh, let's say you're laying up before a hazard. And are you going to hit a high shot that's going to kind of stop, or are you going to hit a bit lower? Well, that's maybe a different club, a different kind of shot, uh, if it's going to run. Those kinds of considerations. So, you know, there's so many things that I think we kind of take for granted, we being more experienced players, again, not necessarily mm -hmm. lower handicappers, but just used to being on the golf course and the kinds of things to think about. Right. Um, so I think it's really, really taking time with our newer players to understand different uh, different ball flights and why and where and how, you know, what clubs produce them, why we want to make those choices in a particular situation. Um, so, and then being able to visualize that. Uh, with more advanced players, clearly, I do think that it's important to 
um, kind of uh, to really make a decision about what shot you're going to play and then visualize it. And in that, in that decision is, are those considerations? How is the ball going to run? Why do I want it to run? How much do I want it to run? Uh, what's going to, what kind of shots going to be produced by, you know, a wedge compared to a seven or eight iron or whatever that, that kind of shot is. So, um, you know, it's really taking into account the factors, um, you know, the wind and the, uh, the mm-hmm. placement of the pin and those sorts of things. So, um, you know, and in taking those things into account, making a very clear decision. When you are about to hit a shot and you're kind of like, well, you know, not that real clear about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and the shot that you're playing and the trajectory that you're playing, it's going to come out kind of muddled or you aren't going to have full confidence when you're at the ball making that swing. So that's why I think it's so important to to know what, what factors are going into your decision, make that decision, and that, and that decision involves the, the shot that you've decided to play. Then you can visualize that shot. With that clear visualization, right. now you can step up to the ball and execute the shot. And it's a great way, as you pointed out, it's a great way for those that aren't normally uh, visually um, proficient, if you will, in, in, in playing the game. It sometimes, like you said, it's very difficult for a lot of people, not all people, but some people don't visualize when you ask them, say, okay, well, you know, let's step up, here's your ball, let's look at the conditions, and I want you to visualize the shot, and they kind of look at you with a kind of a screwed face because they're not really able to, to sort of compute that. So, uh, again, having them go through the various steps and gathering that information uh, to make an informed decision then it helps them to to be able to in their mind's eye to visualize a little bit, and and that's something as you pointed out, Jamie is is important. I think as um, teach professionals, I think quite often, you know, we a lot of times throw this jargon out there: visualize this, feel that, and a lot of times people don't always fit into that single mold, and so we have to be cognizant of that and recognize that not everybody learns the same, and um, you know falls into suit in, in the same uh, methodology. So we have to make sure that we're uh, really listening uh, to, to how they respond to things. Um, well, great answer, by the can way. I just say, can I say one yeah, thing go ahead. in there, Ted? And um, this is actually kudos to the LPGA. Uh, I mean, when I, and this was like 20 years ago or so when I first went through the training program, um, you know, as a, as a teaching professional. And one of the very first things that they taught was learning styles. That this is a student-centered model. We need to be student-centered, and one of the very first considerations in that is what is this this particular person's learning style? And are they more left and right brain? Are they more a field player, analytical player? And then, are uh, do they learn better visually, auditorial, uh, auditory, or kinesthetic? And that those things are important to know because otherwise, it's just mm-hmm. a little bit too generalized to say oh, well, you know, psychologists say that visualization is crucial, is essential, and maybe that's just not a person's, um, you know, main mode. So uh, I just think that, that that being tuned into the student-centered model, which is very much about their particular learning style and their preferences, their mm-hmm. tendencies, their strengths, because what you want to do ultimately is uh, have the player be confident in their in their thought process, their decision-making, and ultimately stepping up to the ball to execute their shot. It's about the confidence. Right, exactly. I couldn't agree more. Um, Alex, I'm going to come back to you and, and um, 
now we're going to get to the part where we're actually ready to execute the shot. In, in other words, we're, we're committing to, to pulling the trigger, as they say. And so once you've now uh, either seen uh, visually or otherwise, you understand the shot that you're ready and have now committed to, uh, you want to be able to uh, get in position. And again, this is where uh, you're going to fall into a, a hopefully a, a well-rehearsed pre-shot routine and, and getting everything organized. You've taken the information in, and now you're going to do it. And sometimes you need a trigger to get you started. Some people, uh, when you look at some of the, the older golfers like a Nicholas or a Palmer and, and, and others uh, on the LPGA, uh, sometimes they had a waggle or others might, uh, you know, for right-handed golfers, might uh, uh, move their right knee in just slightly to sort of like a forward press uh, and then uh, initiate the backswing. Um, what's a good way to, to get a player when they're at that stage, they've done all the steps we've talked about here before. They're now ready to execute the shot. How do they get started? What's, and again, I know it's going to vary, but give, me, give us some examples of some things that you found to be successful with your students in getting them ready to now execute that shot. Absolutely, yeah. Um, obviously, everybody's a little bit different, but um, trying to get the, the player to, to play kind of unstoppable golf, uh, unstoppable golf on the, the golf course is, is going to be key. Um, I think... The, the power of, of just making a practice swing beforehand is is huge. Um, a lot of a lot of golfers feel like they're wasting a good swing when they make a practice swing, but really it's just to get the cognitive steps out of the way. So, what I would suggest to a lot of people is is making a practice swing, going back to the visualization that we just talked about, but then backing away. And it's okay, it's fine to be cognitive and think about everything that you're trying to do with your golf swing on the practice swing, but you need to have a buffer between the thinking and the doing. So once you've made that practice swing, you can, you can back away, make sure that you line yourself up correctly, walk in. And I, I depending on the, the type of person or their personality, I'll either give them a, a kind of a shot clock of five seconds or seven seconds, depending on, again, their personality and their tendencies, and just say, okay, get up, get in, and go. And they'll, like, they'll look at you kind of strange, like, oh, what, I don't have time to think? And it's like, no, you, you've already got the... The, the the thinking part out of the way, backing away gets gets you to turn the brain off a little bit and think more about the target, and then walk up and go, um, and and trying to kind of get them to do that um, on a consistent <laughs> basis, it, it really does um, help a tremendous amount. Um, when you do introduce a, a routine like that, uh, maybe the first time they go out and play, they'll do it for about three or four rounds, and then they'll just kind of get distracted, but. Uh, challenging students to to try and go as deep into the round as possible and keeping that same routine um, over over a few rounds they they can get pretty far down the line and uh, and stick to it yeah great great point Alex and Jamie, just to add to that a little bit, you know this is a really a crucial time uh, for a lot of golfers because you know as I mentioned a moment ago you know they've they 've gone through the various steps they 've um, you know, they've made a decision, they've gathered the information that they need to, in order to make an informed decision of what club selection and so forth. Uh, maybe they've taken a, a practice swing or two uh, and they're going through their routine. And then all of a sudden, as they're getting ready to actually execute the shot, there's this long pause. They're kind of staring at the ball and, you know, their eyes are kind of glazing over and they, they just kind of freeze in the moment. Um, and it kind of goes to what Alex just talked about a moment ago, and that is people get a lot of thought, uh, a lot of thinking, if you will, uh, in their uh, process and kind of freeze over the ball. Um, 
what are some things that maybe you like to do to try and help them kind of get unstuck, if you will? You know, it's really amazing how we can freeze and over a second or second and a half, you know, be blacked out almost. <laughs> like, where were we? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's really quite amazing, you know, and to practice being present for a second and a half. It sounds like nothing, but it's really a big deal. So a few mm-hmm. things that I work with in terms of practice and preparation for that, the very biggest thing I work with is, and I think you know this, is that I very much use the body uh, as a place for mental focus. So when we talk a lot about mind, body, and holistic, uh, for me, the mind is a monkey, right? It it moves. It just mm-hmm. does. And so, and sometimes it moves into blackout. Sometimes mm-hmm. it, it moves into freeze. Sometimes, you know, we want it to move. Uh, sometimes it moves into distraction, right? Um, mm-hmm. I like to train people, and as a martial artist and a psychologist or somatic psychologist, I really like to work with training people to have their mind uh, move into their body. So what do I mean by that? It's like, you know, waggle, waggle, you know, over the ball as you're, you know, um, preparing for the shot. It's like, oh, what happens in that moment uh, after the waggle is the, is the backswing, is the swing's going to start? And for me, it's like, okay, my mind, I like to train people. You feel your belly center. You feel your feet. Uh, you feel the club head, you know, just really solid right behind the ball, these kinds of things. Um, or maybe the exhale, oh. There's that moment of stillness and mm-hmm. what exactly people talk about a trigger, you know, what triggers the backswing. For me, I'm really big into starting with the feet. Uh, that's Jack Nicholas said golf play between the arches of the feet. So I like to get the swing going from the, the uh, instep, okay, backswing, left instep, downswing, right instep. You know, but we train this. This isn't something you're thinking about necessarily over the ball, but it's trained in there and you've trained uh, your mind to be present in that over the ball in your body. And if you can feel your breath, you can feel your feet, uh, that feeling. It's already putting you into sensation and presence. So I think it's, you know, just so much practicing presence and using those body body cues. And breath, again, is also a body cue. That last uh, exhale, oh, moment of calm, inhale, whoa, club's going back. So things like that. And, um, and really, it, the other thing is to just practice hitting shots um, and being present for that second and a half. <laughs> you know, uh, were you there? What do you remember? What happened? And it's really an interesting practice, and it takes practice to be present mm-hmm. during, no matter what the shot was that you hit. And that's not the point in the moment, uh, um, you know, in, during this practice. The shots get better, you know, and, and all. But the first thing is to just can you be <laughs> present what happened during that second and a half? And that is a huge achievement, and that really is very empowering to the player. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, a lot of times we, you know, we all fall into this trap from time to time. As I said, we're, you know, you get in a situation, you, uh, especially as, as pressure mounts, maybe you're playing in, in your club championship or, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you're, you're playing uh, for a little bit of money with, with your weekend foursome and you get a little bit nervous over the shots. And, and a lot of times if you don't practice different areas, as we were talking about tonight, um, it's very easy to get kind of stymied over the ball. And uh, you'd be surprised even some of the best players sometimes from time to time will uh, get out of their routine. And that's why you'll see them quite often. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that they think as well, you know, there must have been a fan clapping in the background. 
you know, we've seen countless times over the years, both on the men's and the ladies' tours, where you'll see a player, player get up, they've, you know, looked at the shot, they're about ready to hit the shot, and all of a sudden they'll back away. And a lot of times is there's something that's not quite right in that routine, something they're not quite set, they're not quite ready. And a lot of times is they haven't got into the zone they need to get. So it's very, very critical, I think, to understand that and to feel in the present moment, as you pointed out, uh, Jamie, a great, uh, great point. Um, Alex, I'm going to get you this sort of, uh, again, an area that I, I want you both to touch on. And this is, uh, you know, we, we've done all the steps that we've talked about. We've now hit the shot. And although the ball has, you know, already left the club face, uh, sometimes your initial reaction can be part of the next pre-shot routine. Sometimes, uh, you know, we might have topped the ball. We might have hit the old uh, banana ball and it's out in the woods in the right. Uh, a lot of times our reaction to shots uh, can be just as important as the actual shot themselves. Talk on a little bit about that. And then, Jamie, I've got another area that I want you to, to get into a little bit further on. Uh, Alex, go ahead and start that off. Sure. I mean, we, we talk about um, having a trigger to start our routine. I, I think we have to have a trigger to end our routine as well. And it's, it's easier said than done, but accepting the, the outcome of your shots. Um, I, obviously, it's, it's easy to say, you know, if it's a bad shot, just forget about it. But th- there definitely has to be a, a structure to your routine that does, does accept whether it's good or bad at the end. Um, I've personally found um, when I've had the opportunity to walk a golf course versus ride a, ride on a golf cart, um, I've, I've and with students we've found that um, they seem to accept the situation a little bit quicker when they walk versus when they mm-hmm. uh, ride in a golf cart because obviously you can be frustrated and you can be heated and, and increase your pace. Um, that you're walking at, but you can only maintain that pace for so long. Whereas in a golf cart, um, it's easy to jump in a golf cart and just slam on the gas and and get to the ball before you've had time to really kind of let things sink in and then start your routine for the for the next one. Um, so a lot of it comes down to acceptance, um, and I think it, again it comes down to a personal um, approach. Everybody's a little bit different in, in terms of their personalities and things like that, but mm-hmm. it definitely has to be a strong part of your uh, your pre and post shot routine. Yeah, and, and that's a great point. You know, a lot of people. You know, it's a shame, really, that uh, one of the things that I I don't like as much about golf today is the necessity that we've uh, created for uh, driving the golf cart and. Don't get me wrong, it's nice as I get a little bit older, it's sometimes nice not to have to walk all the time. But you raise a great point, Alex, and that is that you know when you're walking, even if you're a little fumed or a little hot under the collar, if you will, because you've hit a bad shot, uh, you can kind of walk it off by the time you get to, unless you, you, know, you only hit it two or three feet, uh, then it's a different situation. But you know if you've hit a little ways down the fairway or into the rough a little ways, you know, you've got some time until you get to that shot. You can walk it off, you can think about it. And, uh, and prepare, you know, for what may lie uh, as you get up to your ball uh, and, and kind of decompress a little bit where you're right. You step on the gas, you get in that golf cart, and you're still kind of fuming under the collar by the time you get up there. And a lot of times you're not making the best uh, decisions. And, Jamie, this is where I come in, uh, want to come to you for this. And, and that is, again, sort of piggybacking off of what, what Alex talked about. And that is really carrying a, no- a lot of negative thoughts from one shot to another uh, can create a lot of frustration, a lot of anxiety, which are, are two things that will certainly uh, cause damage to your score. Uh, and the old saying, you can't change the past. Um, once you put the club in the bag and, and, and taking your glove off, the shot is over. So talk about that 
area as well, because this really gets into the mental side of the game a little bit. Um, you know, what can we do? You know, I'll give you a great example. I uh, Several years ago uh, on the other program I do on Tuesday mornings, the Women of Golf, Cindy and I uh, were talking, and uh, one of the guests came on and, ta- and shared a story about Annika Sorenstam. And what she used to do is after she hit a shot and she was walking to the next ball, um, you know, she would struggle like many of us do with, with getting sometimes too caught up in the golf game and, and uh, too many, you know, thoughts going on. And somebody gave her a tip, and it just happened that she was um, doing some remodeling at home with her kitchen. And a pro gave her a tip and said, you know what, when you're walking between shots until you get up to the ball, why don't you think about some of the things that you need to do? And what it was really she was trying to say is to distract yourself a little bit. So talk a little bit about that, if you wouldn't mind, uh, Jamie, is about how the negative thoughts can creep in and how we can handle that and sort of refocus that energy into a positive outcome. Well, I think the first thing is to realize that when we talk about the mental game, in many ways we're talking about the emotional game. And so mm-hmm. I, work with my, I work with my players as I work with myself to notice, as you were talking about in the very beginning of this question, what's my re- emotional response or what's your emotional response to each shot? And they tend to fall in some categories. One is you're just happy. It's like, oh, great, cool. This is wonderful. I'm so happy. And so, you know, you're kind of buoyant. Your energy's high. You're feeling confident. You're, you know, just walking up to or, or riding up to your ball. So, okay, so that's great. Um, next one is maybe you hit it and you're a little nervous. You're not quite sure where it landed or what's the lie going to be. Is it really all right? And so you notice, oh, my God, I'm nervous. And you can feel that nervousness. And then maybe you start speeding up or you want to get to find out what it is. And you're in the fear, a dimension of fear, okay, or emotion of fear, Um, then you can be pissed, right? Sometimes you finish up and you're just pissed. Mm -hmm. God, what I hit it for, look, oh, no. And uh, (laughs) you can be pissed and you can be downright really afraid, you know, and you can be really bummed. It's like, oh, crap, it's out of bounds. There goes my score or I just lost that hole or that's going to screw my score and I'm going to not make the qualifier. Well, you know, whatever you think it is. So, you know, it's like you really – want to feel be aware and notice what is your emotion because if you're going to be able to do anything about it you got to know what it is and um and then also notice how extreme it is is it a little is it a lot and you know this again ted as a martial artist uh, and i'm just Mm -hmm. all about finding center and you know Mm -hmm. we need to come back to center we need to get our energy calm we need to get our mind clear how do you do that and there are some varying ways to do that. Those are things that, you know, I like to coach people in so that they know what their center is, what it can do, why it's important. And again, referring back to the body, your centers in, you know, belly breathing and feeling your feet and getting grounded and finding uh, balance. Sometimes it's even just, you know, rock your weight, left foot, right foot, oh, come to center, be still for a moment. And you can do that while the other person's playing, you know, hitting their shot. And so it's like, okay, I feel all that energy. That's natural. That happens. I'm human. Uh, and some of us are more and less emotional. Some people express it more or less. Um, but, you know, it's going on in there. And so how can I get myself to a place where, you know, I'm centered and clear and then can, to go back to some of your original questions, make some, you know, use the mind, mm-hmm. use my mind uh, for assessing situation, making the next good decision. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you know, after that shot and after you notice all that, to find your center, then your focus is on what's next now, right? The only, the most important mm-hmm. shot in golf is, is, is this one, right? And so as you're walking or driving up there, you know, what's next now? And that's where we need to be focused. And, again, I really, really 
uh, train people to use their body as a place to manage their mind, manage their emotions, make their next swing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, something else, uh, you know, two guys that we, we've heard here lately in, you know, maybe over the last couple of years particularly, um, some of the, the mind coaches are actually encouraging their players that it's okay, you know, if, you, if they – and I'm talking about obviously the tour players as an example – um, you know, that it's okay if, if you didn't get the desired outcome and you've got some pent-up energy, uh, it's okay to expel it. And that doesn't mean that they encourage them to be thumping their club or whipping their clubs around or, or you know, suddenly letting out a loud screech in the middle of a tournament. Um, but to get that energy out, because a lot of times what people don't realize, and if you think about this for a second, it makes a lot of sense. You know, go back to an amateur for a second. When you've hit a bad shot, a lot of times that not only do those negative vibes come in, but your adrenaline quite often kicks in and you get kind of hopped up and you get a, a bit of adrenaline rush. And if you don't do some way of, of sort of, as you put it, Jamie, is sort of set, getting recentered uh, and, and sort of decompressing a little bit, what ultimately happens is you get up to that next shot and you're, you're kind of hopped up and, and ramped up and, you, you know, you get all this pent-up energy out of frustration and anger um, at what just happened. And now suddenly you step over the ball and what might be a simple, you know, uh, flop shot onto the green suddenly gets sculled and goes 25 yards over the green because you've got all this pent-up energy. So I think it's important, as you pointed out, uh, Jamie, is to really, um, you know, get yourself refocused, get yourself centered, and let it go. Get it out of your system, let it go, and, and get yourself prepared for the, for the now and not worry about what just happened, you know, two minutes ago. Um, would that be a pretty accurate assumption, uh, Jamie? Yeah, absolutely. And just what I would add to it is that, you know, being centered, we talk about it, but it's a physical thing, you know, something you feel in your Mm -hmm. body, you do in your body. And that what's happening when you do that is two things. You're really changing your biochemistry from all that adrenaline that you just talked about um, from sort Mm -hmm. of cortisol. You want to have the positive uh, hormones like dopamine and serotonin. Um, And so you're really altering your biochemistry. You're also altering your brain function. Because reactive stress brain function is that our brain function just goes boom real fast down to our brain stem and our limbic brain, what we call primitive brain, lizard brain, uh, from our prefrontal cortex, which is where we have rational uh, mind and clear decision-making process. So when you're getting centered, it's not just like, oh, yeah, groovy, I'm getting centered or I'm spiritual or something like that. No, it's like you are really changing your inner biochemistry and brain function. Therefore, you feel better. Therefore, you think better. Therefore, you make better decisions. Therefore, you can make a swing where your palms aren't all sweaty and your heart's racing and, all, and you're, you know, kind of carried away by your emotions. So I think it's really important to understand that there's this really big dimension of centering and balance that uh, is, is affecting us at such uh, profound levels inside the body. And subjectively, we experience that as clearer mind. Um, you know, calmer, less shaky body, et cetera, a bit more able to, to actually perform, just feeling better, more confident, et cetera. Right. Well said. And, and Alex, just to sort of wrap up a little bit here as we, we get close to uh, uh, closing up the, the Coach's Corner uh, session, um, you know, a lot of times we, we see golfers that maybe haven't played for a few years. Um, you know, they played a lot of golf maybe when they were younger, they're into their golden years now. They haven't played for a few years for whatever reason, family obligations, work obligations, what have you. And now they're at a point where, you know what, I've got time on my hands. I want to 
you know, sort of revamp things, get back out there. And I think some of the points that we talked about tonight are a gr- good way to sort of get reengaged and get started back in, beginning with let's start making some good decisions. How do I want to get a, a, a practice uh, regiment put together? And, uh, you know, how can I visualize uh, some of the things that I need to do? And, uh, and so on and so forth. Maybe just summarize that up a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, um, for those golfers that maybe uh, have gone away from the game and now are sort of re-entering uh, in the game at this point. Sure. I, I think um, one thing I would say to, to anybody is, is try not to, to live in the past a little bit and maybe um, temper your expectations just a little bit. The, the game has changed, depending on how, how far uh, gone they've been from, from playing. Um, but really just going back to basics, um, I I do get a lot of students um, that have stepped away from the game and have come back, and it's amazing when you go back to the what I call the boring basics of, of grip, posture, alignment, things like that, um, it can get somebody back on track pretty quickly. Um, but just setting a, mm-hmm. a sound foundation when it comes to to, to get him back into to the game, I think that's key. There's there's no shortcuts or or getting away from covering some of the basic things of the, of the game of the golf, and and those those tend to kind of go away pretty quickly. But you can also get those back pretty quickly as well. Yeah, and I think it, uh, you raise a good point. I think to you know kind of forget the past a little bit. You might have been uh, you might have been a player that got to a five handicap uh, in your day, and uh, again. You know, you, for whatever reason, family obligations or what have you, you've, you've stepped away for a few years. Uh, don't expect that when you pick up the club that you're going to be right there at that five handicap. You might have to, uh, you know, do a few things to, to get yourself back in the swing. Um, but you're right. You can't live in the past. You can certainly learn from uh, mistakes that you've made in the past. But I, I think that's uh, some sound advice is to, to get yourself grounded and, and, you know, review the fundamentals. You know, uh, take away from uh, Jack Nicholas uh, in, in his uh, videos. Uh, golf my way one of the things he talked about is each season when the seasons were a little bit shorter uh you know he had more time off before he got ready for his next season and he didn't come out and reinvent the wheel what he did is he came out and he got himself warmed up and he practiced and he focused on the things he knew he was going to need for uh particularly for the majors was his focus but um you know he didn't try to reinvent the wheel he just really went through all of the fundamentals again and this is you know certainly arguably one of the great uh, players of all time uh stuck to the basics. He said, that's really all I needed to know when I came out there and I played a few practice rounds and I was ready to go. Um, so I, working on the fundamentals, I think is key and uh, they can be a little bit boring. So I think, uh, you know, finding some, uh, you know, help with your coach. If you're working with a teaching professional or a coach, uh, say to them, Hey, you know, let's, let's try to find some practice that can be interesting and fun, make some challenges, um, make some games out of it, if you will. Uh, so that's not uh, just, you know, repetitive, boring practice. And I like the fact, too, you know, that was mentioned earlier uh, about sometimes getting off the flat surface of that practice area and getting off to the side of the tee, uh, you know, on the practice tee and that, and, and uh, or find an area that you, you can get access to where you've got some slope to it and that and practice some of the different angles that you might be faced with when you get out on the golf course because you're not, as we all know, you're not going to have a perfectly flat lie uh, every every time you get out on the golf course. In fact, you're going to have... Uh, very few of them uh, out in the golf course these days. Um, well, guys, I, I want to thank you very much for some interesting discussion and some great points that you uh, you both raised. And uh, Alex, particularly, I want to thank you uh, for joining us tonight and welcome to the Coach's Corner family. And uh, as always, I give each of you an opportunity to, uh, to let the folks know if they want to reach out to you, the best way to do that. And uh, Jamie, I'm going to let you go first and then Alex. 
People can reach me through my website, which has got two different URLs. They go to the same place, kiigolf.com, K-I-A-I-Golf.com, or thecenteredway.com, and that's with an E-D, Centered Way. Um, and um, I've been doing a lot of online work uh, during COVID, so um, online virtual golf mastery schools and lessons, uh, coaching. Uh, I do a lot of speaking, as you know, corporate and, uh, you know, golf talks mm-hmm. and uh, golf and business talks, uh, those sorts of things. Um, lessons online and uh, doing, you know, I do a lot of um, uh, mental game, you could, you could call it. I call it rising to lower scores. So it's really a very somatic, body-based, psych- uh, I'm also a psychologist, psychology-based um, type of um, approach to the mental game that's really been very, very helpful. I was really excited today. I just got a text from a, a student of mine. She's never broken 50, and she just played golf today with her husband, shot 46-49, uh, hit the stick twice, beat him. <laughs> She's just so excited. Um, so, you know, it's just really nice to get that, that kind of uh, feedback and how excited she is and et cetera. So um, anyway, so people can reach me through my website or um, – and, you know, email that away. I always take phone calls. I am old-fashioned in terms of liking text and talking, 760-492-GOLF, G-O-L-F-4653. Uh, and, um, yeah, just get in touch and uh, really happy to help folks. And, of course, I have DVDs and, and um, fitness and golf fitness, all kinds of stuff. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jamie. And, Alex, what about yourself? Best way if the folks want to reach out to you and, and – uh, and uh, pick your brain on how to help their game, or if maybe they're going to be in your area or are in your area and want to maybe uh, connect with you for some lessons and so forth. What's the best way that they could reach out to you? No, well, first off, Ted, thanks for having me having me on the, the show tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, I think uh, all golf instructors out there are trying to simplify the game, and uh, I'm a big believer that, power, uh, that information's a, it's a good thing, but it's a powerful thing as well, and, and golf's a unique sport where there is so much information out there, some that is good and some that kind of contradicts as well. Um, definitely trying to make the game as simple as possible. Um, I'm here in the Durango, Colorado area at the Glacier Club for about another 10 days. Um, if you want to find out some information about the programs that we have here, you can check out theglacierclub.com. Um, and then starting uh, September 14th, I'll be back at the JW Camelback Golf Club in Scottsdale and uh, offering a variety of different player development player development programs. Um, I've created a program called the the Futures Golf Academy, which is really trying to get kids into golf all the way through middle school, high school, and onto collegiate golf as well, Uh, as well as teaching um, golf schools and things like that as well. Um, A lot of my information is out on my website, which is alexfisherpga.com. And I I take phone calls as well, so anybody can reach me at 602-363-9800. Perfect. Well, guys, as always, thank you very much. And again, Alex, welcome aboard to the Coach's Corner panel uh, discussions. And I know you're going to be coming back and joining us on a future one. And Jamie, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on, my friend. And uh, keep up the great work and uh, stay safe out there, both of you, if you're moving about. And I know it can be uh, challenging at times, but uh, the one good thing about uh, golf is we've been very blessed that uh, it's one of the few, few activities out there that we've been able to uh, really stick to um, through this difficult time for everybody. And uh, I think uh, one of the positive takeaways is a lot of new people have come to the game who might not have never uh, had that opportunity or interest in it and uh, have decided to take a, 
a sneak peek, if you will, into golf. So I hope we take advantage as an industry of that and welcome them with open arms. But, guys, thank you very much, as always, and I look forward to the next time you join me on Golf Talk Live's Coach's Corner panel. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much, Ted. Say hi to Byron, too, okay? I'll be listening. I will. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That was my very special uh, guest panelists on the Coach's Corner uh, segment, uh, Jamie Leno-Zimron and Alex Fisher. And uh, if for some reason, if you missed uh, that portion of the broadcast, at the end of the show, you can go back and visit uh, blogtalkradio.com. Uh, forward slash golf talk live and scroll down to the on demand section and at the end of the broadcast a little ways after usually about 20 30 minutes after the broadcast airs uh, the recorded version will become available uh, so you can check it out there and you can go back and listen to a great panel discussion tonight and again a special thanks to alex for uh, coming on board as a new uh, panelist i know he's uh, uh, going to do a great job as he did tonight, so I'm really looking forward to that. And as uh, Jamie alluded to, uh, we've got uh, a very special guest joining me tonight. He's become really good friends, and actually, uh, I must confess, uh, he has always been a great guest on the show, and we always have some some great discussions uh, both on and off air. Uh, I met Byron a short time after I had his uh, father on the show back in, uh, I think it was uh, early uh, might have been late 2013 uh, or 2012, I'm not uh, sure, but uh, his dad, uh, Billy Casper, legendary Billy Casper, came on the show, and we had a great discussion. He talked about his book, The Big Three and Me, and some other things that uh, he was doing, and uh, really had a great time, and he's certainly, uh, I know, missed by his uh, many fans, but uh, particularly by the Casper family, um, and uh, Byron and I uh, developed a, a friendship shortly after uh, that interview, and uh, we've become really good friends, and, and uh, as I said, got into some uh, great discussions uh, over the years, and uh, he's been a, a, a favorite uh, among my guests uh, uh, each season, and he hasn't been on for a little while, so I, I wanted to make sure he came back, and and uh, so he's coming on here tonight. So let me just tell you a little bit about Byron, for those of you that aren't familiar with him, and then I will uh, wait for him to uh, uh, to become available, and uh, and we'll get the discussion going on the second half. Uh, Byron, as I mentioned, is uh, son of the legendary Billy Casper, who uh, was uh, really uh, a legend in his own right. He uh, played against uh, the best of the best, uh, of course, uh, notably against uh, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Gary Player, and a host of others uh, out there on the tour. That was uh, his generation, if you will, and he battled out with all of uh, the best on the PGA Tour, and then ultimately went on to the Champions Tour for many years uh, before he passed. Um, Byron is a PGA professional himself, uh, actually a inter- uh, member of the international PGA. Uh, he's a co-founder uh, with his father uh, before he passed uh, uh, with the Billy Casper Golf Schools, and he's uh, recently become a senior editor and a top 25 instructor with Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, and uh, he has taught uh, golf in three countries, including St. Andrews, Scotland, uh, where he lived for a number of years. Uh, he's a graduate of the San Diego Golf Academy and spent five years traveling and caddying on the PGA Tour. Uh, and again, as I mentioned, uh, he and his father started the Billy Casper Golf Academy uh, and um, been uh, doing some, some great work there. And is a firm believer that knowledge is power, and it is Byron's privilege to pass all of his knowledge that he's gained Uh, not only from his father, but on his own, uh, onto his students and clients uh, wherever he may be traveling. So I'm very, very excited to have him uh, come back on. And while we're waiting for him, let me just remind everybody 
Uh, again, that uh, Golf Talk Live is brought to you by the iGolf Sports uh, Network, and iGolf Sports is a live stream and uh, broadcast and media production company providing top-quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. Golf Tips, as well, is a sponsor. Uh, Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, offering insightful reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top PGA and LPGA teacher professionals, all designed to help improve your game from tee to green. So subscribe today. Go to golftipsmag.com. And uh, really, really excited, as I said, to have uh, Byron join me on the show. And um, just a, a quick reminder um, that um, next week, uh, for those of you that uh, tune into Golf Talk Live may not be familiar, I also host another program called The Women of Golf, and that also airs on the blogtalkradio.com network, a uh, different time and a different uh, channel, if you will. So if you go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash women of golf, type in women of golf this time, uh, you'll hear uh, both myself and my good uh, uh, friend, uh, LPJ professional Cindy Miller. We're co-hosts together. Uh, you'll hear us uh, on that show every Tuesday. And uh, we feature uh, a lot of the young winners, uh, up-and-coming winners off of the Symmetra Tour, which, of course, is the feeder into the LPGA. So we're always uh, excited to have them. And then, of course, we follow up with uh, another great guest uh, shortly after. That show is an hour long, and it airs from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern uh, here on the blogtalkradio.com network. All right, I see my good friend Byron is, uh, is ready and, uh, and ready to go here. So uh, please welcome my very special guest, Mr. Byron Casper. Good evening, Byron. Great, great to be here, Ted. All right, I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Uh, always uh, great to catch up with you on air and off air, and uh, I know we've got lots to talk about. So um, I think the question I want to start off with tonight is about the Billy Casper Golf Academy. Um, yeah. Why did your dad de- Yeah. Why did your dad decide to start the academy? And, and I guess overall, what's the primary mission of the academy? You know, it was interesting. As um, when I was a kid, my dad had a uh, uh, Billy Casper golf camp um, that ran in the summers in San Diego, and it ran in San Diego, and it also ran up at Mount Shasta in Northern California, and um, and I think it probably uh, was in existence for about 15 years. I still run into people um, to this day that uh, that attended the golf camps. And that was his first um, foray, I suppose, into uh, his love of teaching and really giving back, uh, especially to kids. Um, and that may have even been the fore- forefront to uh, the Billy Casper Youth Foundation, which is still in existence today, which is all about raising needed funds for children's charities but um but the golf camp um shut down um, sometime in the uh, in the 80s and um dad really had done a lot of teaching um i'd been the one that had been teaching over in scotland and uh, and then uh, california and then in utah and interestingly enough i was uh, working with one of my father's friends teaching him uh, a lesson uh uh, I don't mind mentioning him because he's still a good friend to this day, Damian McHugh. He's a doctor in Raleigh. And um, mm-hmm. and I was working with him, and my dad stopped in to say hi and watched uh, watched me work with Damian for about an hour and a half. And on the way home, I got a call from my mom, and she said, your uh, father wants to talk to you. Come up to the house in the morning. And that was the beginning of the Billy Casper Golf Academy. And the the real 
message that, um, that, and the reason why my father opened up uh, the Billy Casper Golf Academy was he wanted to make it a little bit different. He wanted to have players that were good players um, that could go out and do playing lessons, club fittings, or give, give lessons. Um, and he wanted to personalize it. And he wanted to do it at a cost that every golfer could enjoy and appreciate mm-hmm. because, as, as my dad says, golf is an expensive sport. So let's help people get better at a cost that, that everybody can afford to do. And, um, and then working on all the aspects of the game. You know, uh, when my father was still alive, he was able to come on board with me and the other golf pro we had working with us and take an active role in teaching short game and putting. Um, he usually left all the full swing stuff to me and Nick McKinley, um, but he would he, he really enjoyed taking an active role in helping people. And I think at the end of the day, if I had to make all of that short, um, it would be his desire to help people enjoy this game even more. You know, well said. You know, what's really interesting, and as I was, um, before you came on, I, uh, you know, I sort of set everybody up uh, for those that may not be familiar with you. And, and uh, obviously, you know, they, they uh, most people that have been around golf for any length of time uh, know both you and your father. But um, for those that, uh, you know, maybe didn't, you know, I shared a little bit about, um, you know, your father being on the show uh, several years back and, and, uh, you know, how you and I sort of developed a relationship shortly after that. And what really struck to me, and I, I shared this with you really, I think the very first time we talked, uh, and it, it became abundantly clear. And uh, I'll, before we end our conversation tonight, I'll uh, remind everybody to go back into the archives and search for that interview. But, uh, you know, your father was really so giving of his time and really – I, I can't stress enough, wanted to give back to a game that really had given him so much. I mean, you know, he, he obviously, uh, you know, had very humble beginnings and he went on in golf, you know, even during that time, you know, the players didn't necessarily make a lot of money in that, in his day as they do compared to today's uh, PGA and LPGA professionals. Uh, but he obviously, you know, earned a living. And But more importantly, he developed a, I guess, a love of the game and an understanding of, of really that golf was more than just hitting the ball around the golf course. There were a lot of life lessons that could be learned from that. And he wanted to share mm-hmm. the knowledge of not only how to play the game, but the things that he took away from that game, he wanted to give back and, you know, through the, the foundation and, and other areas, of course. Um, and, and that really says a lot. And you, you know, I, I've heard, I got to be honest. I've heard a lot of people, over the years uh, pay a lot of lip service when it comes to, you know, I want to carry on the legacy and I want to do that, but you're the real deal. I've got to give you, you know, your props when that you actually really have just as much passion as your father does uh, and and did during his time. Um, You know, I've interviewed him many times on the show and uh, it's very apparent that you want to really, um, obviously you want to forge your own uh, way in life and that's understandable, but at the same time you want to not just, to keep your, your dad's memory alive, but you want to really honor the commitment that he did. And that was to really give back to a game that gave really both of you uh, some great opportunities in life. Would that be a fairly accurate yeah. assessment? You know, I well, first let me say, thank you very much. I appreciate those, uh, those kind words. It means a lot when I hear people that recognize um, that sometimes it can be a little bit of a tightrope when it comes to having a famous parent 
and especially if you decide to go into the same industry um, as they did. But in saying that, you know, I think the, the, the big key for me personally was the fact that I went through the process um, separate to my father, even though I got all my experience in the early years catting for him on the tour um, and, and also really playing the game and, and being competitive, um, going to the Golf Academy of America when it was still called the San Diego Golf Academy back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, those things all helped to guide me on my own uh, path, so to speak. Um, and so I think that mm-hmm. when, when Dad and I came back, um, I suppose it was 2012, um, there had been a lot of experience that I had gained separate to him. And I think that you know, my father was old school enough to appreciate the fact that even though I could have ridden on his coattails, so to speak, um, I really made the effort to go and learn my own niche myself. And I think that's what made mm-hmm. the combination of him and I working together so special. Um, he had all of this tour experience and, and a love of people. And I had, at that point, um, about 12 to 13 years of teaching experience in three countries. And so we broke, both brought something to the, to the table. And it's hard mm-hmm. to not want to, um, <clears throat> being that Billy Casper, my father, is my hero, um, and I really grew up amazed at what he could do with uh, with a golf a golf ball and a golf club. Um, and, and just look at the footage, as I know you have, and as I hope so, some of the, yeah. the listeners do. Um, he was uh, he was amazing, and uh, but he never lost sight of who he who he was. He never got too big for his britches, to use an old fashioned expression. And he stayed a people person his entire life. And I think that's probably another reason why the Billy Casper Golf Academy was started was because he loved to interact with people. And um, and, and you know the interesting thing is, and I, I think I've mentioned this story to you before, but. You know, the last appearance that uh, my father and I did together was uh, one of his book signings. And we went up, mm-hmm. and we were only under contract for three hours. Um, so we only had to stay there three hours. And when the three hours was up, I said to Dad, I said, let's, uh, let's get going. And he said, a little while longer, a little while longer. And <laughs> six hours later, he was still signing books and talking to people in the, uh, the golf tournament. And I had a chance to run into recently the uh, head pro at that particular golf course. Um, and he remembered that story and was very grateful for the extra time. But that was just who my father was. He, you know, once you got him talking and caring about, you know, a topic or a specific person or a group of people, um, it was very hard to get him to do anything else. And, you know, mm-hmm. you, you know as well as I do, Ted, when you're genuine and you really have a desire to help people, and it's coming from the right place, I think people can feel that. And I think they did feel that with my dad, like you did. Well, and what was really interesting, just to to sort of uh, cap that off, is, uh, you know, going back to when I interviewed your father uh, back a few years ago, um, you know, he he was exactly that. What Just to, again, I won't take up too much time, but just to share a very quick story, uh, you know, this was actually set up through another party and, and who your, your dad had some involvement with at the time. And your dad wanted to speak with me, um, you know, a week or so before we actually got on the show. And, uh, you know, understandably, he didn't know we had never met and so on and so forth. And, you know, we spoke for an hour and had a great conversation. And, 
and sort of set things up. And, and I'll be honest, I kind of anticipated, uh, you know, we were going to talk about, uh, you know, um, uh, some things that your, your dad had been doing at the time. And, and then, of course, I was going to give him an opportunity to talk about the book. And, you know, I, I anticipated maybe, uh, you know, 20, 30 minutes. I didn't know how long it was going to ask uh, last. And what was really surprising, and this goes really to, to my point, was how giving of his time. And, and it makes me kind of chuckle inside when you, you mentioned, you know, you only had sort of a three-hour uh, window at the, at the course there to do the book signing. And ultimately, you know, six hours later, um, we certainly weren't six hours later on the program, but he went basically the whole two hours. Uh, and, um, you know, what was really interesting is uh, we took a number of calls that night and uh, people from all over the United States that called in. And, and uh, I remember one particularly was very grateful that I had your dad on as a guest. And he, he and his son is, I believe, if I remember correctly, his son was about 10 years old. And they were driving back from a football uh, practice along one of the interstates, and uh, he called in off his iPhone, and they were listening to the program, and uh, he just wanted to call in just simply to to, uh, to say hi to your dad. Uh, you know, he wasn't asking any golf questions. He just wanted to say he was a fan of your father's, admired him, uh, you know, growing up, and he wanted to share that experience with his son. And it goes to the point that I was getting Wonderful. to is, you, yeah, your dad was, was such a humble. I, I've had a lot of guests on here. Uh, and and I exclude you for a second for obvious reasons, but um, you know because you obviously have a, a lot of that in your, yourself. But your dad was probably one of the most humble guests I've ever had on this program, and I say that sincerely. Um, he was just so giving of his time, and he was literally so excited to hear from these different folks that called in from various places, uh, just to hear their voice, just to say, hey, you know, Billy wanted to say hello and tell you what you've meant to me growing up watching golf and so on and so forth. And I remember, you know, this tournament and I remember that tournament and, and, you know, just uh, really was awe inspiring. And I could just sense in his voice, you know, uh, he really enjoyed that and not from, you know, a perspective of, you know, Hey, I'm Billy Casper. He was just very humbled at the, uh, you know, the, the, I guess love really that was pouring out from these people because they generally, you could sense that in their voice. They really loved and admired your father as a professional because of the fact that he was humble. He wasn't full of himself. He wasn't, hey, I'm the great Billy Casper. He was a very humble person, and they recognized that he was uh, really giving of his time and, and of his, uh, um, you know, of, of his experience. And it, it showed that evening on the show. And and uh, I see that uh, in our conversations over the years that we've gotten to know one another and here on the show as well uh, when you've been my guest. So. Uh, you're definitely in that respect to chip off the old block. Well, you know what? I gosh, I really appreciate that. That's uh, that's so nice to hear, and and I, I certainly try. Um, but as you know, as I remind <laughs> people as well that I, hey, you know, I had one heck of a role model, um, and um, and you know, there's going to be an article coming out uh, in a month or two's time uh, that I wrote, but um, that you know a little bit about. But, um, right. you know, I, I, mentioned, I mentioned that in the article and the fact that, you know, how many famous families um, in sports or the world in general, entertainment, et cetera, I don't know many, many children that always had access to uh, their parents and especially their dad. It didn't matter whether he was playing in a Ryder Cup or, uh, or just uh, won a major. Um, he always had time for his kids. I don't have any memories as a child of not being able to talk to my dad about anything and, no. uh, or my mom for that matter. And he, 
you know, he was always the same person. Um, I think that one of the greatest tests of a, uh, a career and, and of a personality inside that career is what your fellow professionals think of you. And, um, and that's something that still amazes me to this day when I run into other professional golfers or people in the media, um, how nice they are and how many of them have stories where they were able to interact with my father themselves. And, uh, right. and that's just, you know, that's so, so wonderful as a, as a son who's a professional golfer and who's keeping the Billy Casper Golf Academy alive and, and other things going on in the golf world in my life, um, you know, what a role model to have a father that really made an impact not only in his industry, but I think really made an impact with people in general. Well, and, and, you know, we've talked about this privately before, but, you know, one of the things, and, and obviously, you know, uh, in many ways, you, you, uh, you know, you benefit from your families, uh, your parents particularly, not just with knowledge, but obviously uh, as they are successful and whatever, uh, you know, you, you um, are able to have a, you know, a good life and, and things like that. But, you know, the one thing that really sort of came across to me in, in our conversations was that, you know, he was obviously uh, there for his children, but he also taught you a lot of life lessons along the way, not just about golf, but um, about the importance of, of getting out there and finding your way and, and, you know, working hard and, and, you know, honing whatever skill, you know, that you had that you wanted to pursue. Um, it wasn't just a matter of, okay, I've gone out and I've developed a career and you can just sort of sit on your fanny and do whatever you want because I'm going to take care of you the rest of the mm-hmm. life. And that happens. And I know that's kind of what you were alluding to a little bit. That happens a lot, unfortunately, with families who are uh, either famous or well-recognized, whether it's in sports or even in business. A lot of times, uh, you know, the kids become spoiled in that and just take it for granted. And, and uh, you, you obviously haven't done that. You've, you know, obviously enjoyed uh, some of the fruits of, of your dad's labor, but you've gone out and done your own thing as well. And that's that's what uh, I know he would be most proud of is the fact that you're your own person. You're, yeah, you're Billy Casper's son, but you're your own person. And I know that he would be very proud of that. I want to touch on something because you, you, you yeah. kind of opened the, the, the door for that is you mentioned about catting and stuff. And I was looking at one of the photos on your website and lo and behold, there's a picture of you and, and uh, it talked about Billy Casper at the um, 1986 Masters Tournament. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, you know, I'd been caddying for my father. Um, uh, I left school early, so I started caddying for him uh, right before my 16th birthday. And, uh, and it was a wonderful experience. It wasn't, uh, we weren't, I wouldn't say that we had the best relationship back then, but how many 16-year-olds and fathers um, <laughs> said, do at that point. Um, but it was, certainly wasn't bad. And it was, I think if I had to, use any word, I would say it was challenging, probably much more so for my dad than, uh, than me. Um, but I, right. you know, I really enjoyed cat- catting and, and I credit catting on the tour and being around the tour as one of the main reasons why I went into professional golf myself. I couldn't, you know, I tried other industries when I was in my twenties and, and had graduated, but I never found anything that I had as much passion and love for as I did golf. And so, um, so that's why I decided to go into golf. And that particular picture you're talking about is, uh, it's actually the 85, um, masters, I think, um, mm. it might be the 86, but I think it was 85. And, um, it was really interesting because 
that particular Masters uh, was only a year or two out of where they were allowing tour caddies to come and caddy at, at Augusta. And so I hmm. was uh, I was certainly part of that early group of tour caddies being able to come to Augusta rather than using the Augusta caddies. And, you know, it was a what a life experience to have uh, traveling the world and caddying, carrying a bag on the, on the PGA and then the senior PGA or champions tour. Uh, I mean, gosh, it was, uh, it was a week to remember. And, you know, the masters, it was one of my father's favorite places. He might've even said it was his favorite stop every year. And it became a really kind of an entertaining and a family um, uh, type event for us where we would meet as a family and stay in a house and really enjoy that week um, with close friends and, and other people. Um, and that, you know, interestingly enough, that was where uh, my father had his, uh, uh, his first health problem uh, was actually at Augusta uh, with mm. his heart. And, uh, and I think it was kind of poetic justice that he, you know, he always looked up to playing in the masters, looked forward to playing in the masters, the press, had always said that he would never win the Masters because the course wasn't set up for his game. And when he was able to prove them wrong in 1970, <laughs> I think that was a, a real highlight in his uh, right. in his career, that he was able to actually go out and win this tournament, even though everybody was saying he couldn't. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why uh, it became so special to him um, throughout the years. And he always had a wonderful relationship with uh, with Augusta. Um, up until the last year of his uh, of his life, and Augusta mm-hmm. will always remain a very special place for uh, for our family. I think because of those reasons. Plus, I mean, come on, it's Augusta, so it's uh, it's a beautiful right. part of the world. <laughs> yeah, it is, and uh, it's always been a my favorite tournament. Uh, it's the one I look forward to the most. Um, is uh, the Masters tournament, uh, and of course this year with with COVID. Uh, it uh, was not played in April, which it typically is in the first week, uh, first weekend of April. Um, it's uh, now being moved to uh, early November, and uh, we'll see what happens. But it's certainly not going to be the same this year. Um, and uh, but I'm I'm going to make a point of uh, of watching it uh, uh, just because I do enjoy uh, that as my uh, again my favorite tournament. So we're going to talk a little yeah, bit about I what's think we'll, new. And I think we'll get back uh, to normal, too. I think, we'll, I think just, you know, yeah. just for all of the golf fans out there that are suffering, much like I am when it comes to watching golf and being able to go to tournaments, I think we will get back to a, a sense of normality. Um, so, I, you know, I would just urge people not to give up hope and to still support their local golf courses uh, as well as, uh, as getting their fill of, of TV golf. Um, for the time being, because um, the sport isn't certainly going away, and it is definitely no. uh, something that a lot of us around the golf world look forward to watching these majors every year. Yeah, and and um, you know we'll we'll continue to uh, to watch, and you know right now they've um, you know they've made some some changes obviously this year uh, with with no fans, but. Uh, um, they certainly have fared much better than many of the other sports. So let's talk a little bit about what's new. Uh, I know the last time you were on here, and I want to just sort of recap what's going on there. And uh, I know I kind of know the answer to this, but uh, you were uh, out installing some uh, golf simulators. Uh, you had uh, sort of developed a, a working relationship there. Um, give us kind of an update. Uh, obviously, because of COVID, that's 
kind of taken a, I guess, a back seat. Um, but maybe you could just touch a little bit about what you were doing with that and, and uh, where uh, things are going to progress, um, you know, uh, in the future with, uh, with golf simulators. Yeah, you know, interestingly, I had a, a really good call today with a new golf simulator company that's uh, just opened up here in America from Asia. Um, you know, golf simulators are definitely the way of uh, the future for golf because it becomes less – I mean, increment weather is certainly a factor. Um, I mean, absolutely, especially in places where they're, it's seasonal. People want to keep on top of their golf game. But what I'm also finding is that simulators – add something that a lot of people struggle with nowadays and that's time management and having Mm. your own golf simulator means that you're not having to go necessarily to the driving range to work on your game. You can just pull out the clubs and practice in your garage or in your spare room or theater or whatever, wherever you have it. And I think that's really something that people are, are looking at more and more now uh, in today's world is the time management Mm. and the family enjoyment that come from simulators. Um, The, the installation of simulators, isn't something that we were able to keep on, on top of because of COVID. And so we mm-hmm. shut down the uh, simulator installation aspect of the business, but I'm still involved with part of pro. I'm still involved with Spectre, Spectre golf. Uh, Preston Hicks is the CEO of, of that company. And they're doing a, just an absolute ton of simulator sales right now uh, because people are stuck at home. So why not? invest a little bit of money into something that's going to keep giving back year in and year out. So I still do some consulting on that, but I've really thrown everything into the Billy Casper golf Academy and teaching right now. And also we're starting a new program with the golf Academy where we actually are going to start doing some touring and going Mm -hmm. to select locations in Texas and California, back East and Florida. And we are going to team up with existing golf academies and really bring the Billy Casper teaching method uh, to people all over the country. And that's really become my focus. And interestingly enough, the tie-in with that is really nice with the simulators because we use golf simulators as part of our uh, teaching method because it's nice to go out on the course, but it's also nice to see all of your data. And if we can combine data as well as course management um, I kid you not, people are getting better two and three times faster than ever before. And as you know, in the golf world, that's something that we've always struggled with. Is, right. You know, everybody everybody knows the statistic, but I'll go ahead and say it anyway, and that is that the golf, uh, the average golf handicap hasn't changed in about 35 years and uh, maybe even longer. And that's really shocking, but it's not necessarily surprising. And I think by using all the tools that we have available to us in today's world, meaning simulation, ball flight readers, plus on-course golf management, um, it really opens up the way people are learning this game. It's not just about standing on the driving range and beating 200 balls anymore. You can make your practice time so much more efficient by getting quality instruction and taking advantage of the tech that exists today. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, again, everything is balanced. I mean, you know, you want to uh, utilize uh, some of the technologies out there. Uh, but we also, you know, we need to get out there and, and we need to be able to practice. So the simulators, you know, for those that, that uh, you know, want to take advantage of that and maybe don't have a lot of time to, you know, always zip over to the range for 30 minutes or uh, or what have you, uh, can take advantage of having it right, you know, in their own home or garage, as you said, or, or whatever facility is available. 
um, and it's a great way to have that sort of on-course experience uh, right from within your home. So I, I'm glad to hear that that's uh, uh, something that you're still uh, involved with. Um, you also uh, are launching a new product soon, um, which you talked to me about. And, and again, this is sort of something that's uh, probably been bred out a little bit of this pandemic. Um, you know, a lot of companies have, have had to sort of uh, adapt and, and change. And I know that you got in, involved with a, with a company uh, who uh, actually, and you can sort of share the story a little bit, but uh, developed uh, uh, for years other products and now want to create a new product um, which is now going to be available uh, once everything's finalized uh, for the golf industry. And the company, of course, is called uh, that you're putting up is uh, Golf Nix, and it's golf and then N-I-X. And it's going to be the world's first organic golf-friendly cleanser yeah, and first aid. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Share a little bit of the backstory uh, about the company that, uh, you know, sort of involved with that and then sort of how you came involved in, and a little bit about the product. You know, it's, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that. It's not something that I ever really thought that I would necessarily be involved in. And I think absolutely the, the COVID uh, issue, which we've had this last six months, has been um, – it's definitely something that urged me to go in this direction um, with, a, with a product. Anybody that, I'm, that knows my family and knows my father as well as myself knows that we would never even think about endorsing a product that we hadn't used first or uh, – mm-hmm really liked what it did and uh, and that's why I got involved with uh, with this product and it's really the brainchild of a company back east in the south um, and we were approached uh, uh, through one of their contacts about possibly doing a golf product uh, we named it golf nicks because it really mixes the germs that exist in today's world but especially on the golf course and it is the world's first organic cleanser. Um, if you can imagine a, a product that does everything that the alcohol-based cleaners and cleansers do uh, without the alcohol, and that's what Golf Nix is. Mm-hmm. And in today's health-conscious society, uh, we all know that, that even though we've had to use a lot of alcohol-based cleansers throughout the COVID issue and, and certainly before that, um, I was really excited by having something that was organic, that was um, eco-friendly, that had been um, approved both by the EPA and the FDA, and was a product that was really exciting and going to change people's lives uh, when it comes to the way that they take care of uh, their germs uh, around the golf course, on the golf course, in the golf cart, um, on the way home. Um, and so that's really why I got involved. And we have just recently finished our labeling, got all of the uh, approvals that we've needed to legally, and we'll be launching the product uh, in about three weeks' time. And so uh, the website's not finished yet, but it's golfnix.com. And I'm really excited about this. Um, it, it's something that uh, I'll, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about because I want people to be surprised and eager to try it. Mm-hmm. But this is going to change a lot of people's lives, uh, especially people that have an aversion to alcohol-based products. So super right. excited about it. Yeah, there there have been a lot of you know products that have come out in the market, and again, many of them alcohol-based, as you suggest, and and uh, you know that might be fine for for some folks, but uh, you know there's a lot of other issues that you know we don't need to get into, but um, that can that you know can sort of creep up from that. And uh, I like the fact that, uh, you know, as you and I discussed this uh, off-air uh, a while back, 
um, the, the fact that it's organic and, and uh, you know, uh, environmentally friendly and, and at the same time, it's, it's going to really tackle a lot of the issues that people might be concerned with, um, with uh, various germs and, and um, contagions and things like that that we, we find in our environment today. So uh, very, very excited for it. I'm excited for, for you know, to see uh, when, it's, when you have it officially launched. And we'll, I know we'll talk before then, but um, I'm yeah, really excited for it. Thank you so it. much. I, I, I think appreciate it. I think, I'm excited about it. Yeah, too. I think it's, yeah, I think it's going to be great. Um, so we'll we'll keep you posted on the show when when uh, Byron lets me know when it's officially uh, up and running. I'll I'll uh, read out that uh, website link. As he said, right now it's currently under construction, so uh, there won't be anything to see right at the moment. But hopefully in the next few weeks things will be uh, ready and you'll be able to uh, to get more information. Um, something else I want to mention while we're on the topic of COVID, um, you know I've talked to a lot of different golf professionals both on the coaches' corner. Uh, since we've gone into this pandemic, I've talked to some of the players that, you know, that uh, get interviewed um, on the Women of Golf show that I do Tuesdays with Cindy um, from the Symmetra Tour, um, and just a lot of teaching pros in, in that in the industry that I've gotten to know over the years. Um, how has COVID affected your golf teaching business? Now, um, a lot of the folks that I've spoken with said that they've actually seen an increase uh here especially over the last few months have you noticed that as well have you started to see even though despite many of the restrictions in various areas that um because there are a lot very few options out there that people are getting drawn to golf are you noticing that as well in your uh golf uh teaching business you know i i I really am um it was very quiet uh like most of the world was up until about i'd say about middle to end of may um, and starting into June. And then it just, I started getting inundated with uh, new clients. Um, I'm, I'm actually not far off of a hundred, hundred new clients just over the last uh, three months. And, uh, which is incredible growth rate, uh, for any business, uh, but especially golf. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I think it's, uh, I, the reason my thinking behind it is that when the golf course is open, people started going out and, and enjoying golf again. And people that hadn't played golf, were limited with their options, so they decided to start something new. And so as golf courses were getting busier, people realized that this would be an, an optimal time to start learning the game. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I've picked up quite a few new, uh, new golfers, which is really a wonderful trend because uh, mm-hmm. we certainly could use more golfers in the golf industry. Um, and I've also, I think people want to get better and have the time right now to get better. And so, I've, you know, it really is. We've seen a, a, a wonderful growth. Uh, we're continuing that growth. Um, we're putting a trip together down in Texas uh, in, or later in the year where I'm going to be working with Matt Christian and the Elite Golf mm-hmm. Academy that he has down there. Um, and, and it really is to, again, educate people on the Billy and Byron Casper teaching, teaching method. But it's also giving people something to do. And, you know, even right now, even though the world is opening up a little bit slowly, um, people are still coming back to golf in droves. And I welcome it. Right. I, this is exactly what I'd like to see when it comes to the game of golf. We need to get people better, which is, is one of my, my uh, goals, is to get every single one of my students better. But it's also refreshing to see more couples coming in for lessons it's refreshing to see a lot of women coming in for lessons that are just starting the game. And this is really good for golf. And if we do this correctly, we can make a big impact in people's lives. 
with the game of golf by giving them something that's healthy and fun to do, as well as challenging, especially in a time when the world's a little quieter than it normally is. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing, too, is in, a, in addition to, um, you know, your regular uh, group of golfers that, that, you know, were eager to get back out in the golf course, there's a lot of new ones coming in. And, and you know, um, you know, there's always new golfers coming in, but there's really been, I think, a, a sort of a fresh crop of people that normally might not uh, take up this game. And you're also, uh, I mean, you may not be as experiencing it as much in your area as others, but even a lot of families, I mean, with kids being home for the early part of the uh, uh, spring and that, um, you know, getting out of school and not having anything to do, uh, you know, parents were forced, hey, we've got to find something to do. There wasn't really a lot of uh, things available. And lo and behold, the, the golf industry was one of those few that kind of had a built-in social distancing, if you will. And, uh, you know, a lot of the pros I've talked to said they're even starting to see a lot of parents coming out, bringing their kids to the golf course. So it it really is a great opportunity to introduce a lot of new people that might otherwise not have been introduced to the game. Uh, My question to you, though, Byron, is this. Um, Now that we've, we've got this sort of new, fresh crop of people coming out, new to the game that really have not been exposed, one of the concerns I have is that we don't, take advantage of this opportunity and you know when things kind of start to get back to normal if we're not and and you know what i'm talking about a lot of times this industry and and other industries too but golf particularly has a habit of kind of going down a rabbit hole or going in one direction and not or, or or trying to um you know put everybody in the same box and i think you're getting a lot of new people who again have never been involved in the game we need to make sure we do a good job of not only welcoming them now, but keeping them interested. Any thoughts on that? What do you think that we should do as an industry to, to make sure that this new segment of the population that normally would not be coming out to the golf course, that we want to make sure that they're going to stay in the golf course? Well, I, I think it, it comes down to a really simple word, um, a simple word that's oftentimes forgotten about, and that's passion. Um, I, I, you know, passion is so important to have for whatever industry you're involved in. And I'm kind of known amongst my students and my friends in the golf world as having a tremendous amount of passion. Um, in fact, I always make the joke that I, I'll be the biggest cheerleader you've got, uh, minus the pom-poms. Um, because <laughs> I, um, I, you know, I'm not going to get up there and, and wave pom-poms around, but I, I believe that the job of a golf professional is especially a golf professional that's teaching is Mm -hmm. to be that particular student's biggest fan and create a uh, a certain level of passion for the game and help to instill that in them. And the best way to do that is by educating. Um, I believe that knowledge is power. And so I, I Mm -hmm. I really have a huge education aspect to uh, my lessons I also try yeah, I, and I, to not make people fall backwards first. You know, I don't, I'm not one of these pros that, that believes that I'm going to make you worse before you get better. Um, I think that's an excuse that a lot of people have. And I pride myself on working on two or three things at the most per student, per session, because from my experience, that's about the right number that they can actually really feel good about working on. And if you do that over the course of five lessons, 
they've now got 15 things that they've worked on over the course of a couple months and combine that with video of what they're doing and as they progress so they have trackable data that they can see going coming from point A to point C. Um, I think those those things are how you get people better and I think that's one of the ways that you can create a lot of passion for these uh, you know new students and making it fun. Yeah, and that's the key. You know, you, you mentioned earlier um, about the handicaps, and, and this is an area we've talked about this many time, uh, times here on the show uh, over the years, and you're exactly right. Uh, I don't know, again, as you, whether it's 30, 35 years or what the number is, but it is a pretty high number. Uh, but handicaps really haven't come down uh, as much as they should. In fact, there's really been very little, um, you know, budge, if you will, in the numbers. And this obviously has created a lot of frustration for a lot of people. And I think I think it goes to exactly the point you're making is, you know, you have to first and foremost, you have to listen, really listen um, to the student as a professional. You've got to listen to what it is that they want to accomplish, why they're there. Um, you know, not everybody has aspirations of playing on the PGA or the LPGA tour. Uh, they just want to go out and and, uh, you know, particularly I've talked to a lot of women uh, you know, business professionals who want to take up the game and, you know, they're first and foremost, they just don't want to look foolish out in the golf course. They just want to have an understanding. Mm-hmm. They want to be able to, you know, play a little bit. So, you know, they don't want to get too technical in that. They just want to, to be able to get out and have some fun and, and play with, you know, maybe some of their girlfriends or some of their business, uh, you know, uh, peers, and they just don't want to look foolish. So I think as, as a, an industry, I think, first and foremost, we really need to listen to the consumers as to what it is that they want. And I think we have to be innovative. One of the other problems I think that's caused it, and you probably would agree, uh, I'm all for, uh, you know, keeping, uh, you know, the traditional parts of, of golf. I think it's great to have the traditional 18 holes and, uh, you know, the country club feel. I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I think we also have to open the doors to other avenues and other possibilities as well because, again, not everybody is going to be able to afford that or maybe even has the desire uh, to, to play that kind of golf. So there's a lot of different things that, and opportunities that the industry can make um, and expand on, and we have to be, as an industry, not be so close-minded um, when we uh, you know, yeah, think about, flexible. okay, we've, we've got, you know, yeah, we've got to, exactly, that's the word I was looking for, we've got to be more flexible. And there's lots doing out there, but I think as a, a, an industry whole, I think we've got to even become even better at it as we progress and navigate uh, with some of the challenges that we're currently being faced with. Um, totally agree. What are your, yeah. What are your thoughts, Byron, um, when it comes to, you know, and this sort of falls under instruction again, but in, a, in addition to the industry and the teacher professionals like ourselves that need to get out there and, and, and make sure that we're, we're doing the best that we can, um, one of the challenges, and I, I'm sure you have faced it as well, is is in, encouraging our students to do their part. And their part is not just coming up to the lesson and absorbing what we're teaching them, but actually putting it into practice when they leave the lesson tee and they're on their own. What have you found that's been successful for you to be able to get the transition from, hey, I'm here with Byron taking my lesson, to a week later, what am I doing to reinforce some of the tips and the skills that, that I've been taught. How do we cope with you know, that? Because that's it, a big it, problem. Yeah, in the that, that is a big problem, actually, because, you know, you can, you know, so that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. You know, you can teach a student, but you can't make them practice. 
Um, so again, I fall back on my previous comment about passion and about mm-hmm. the importance to help them get passionate about the game. And usually that comes with something as simple as hitting a good shot. And mm-hmm. you know as well as I do that anybody, as soon as you get that feel of hitting that perfect shot, um, that yep, really brings you back to <laughs> to the game. You're hooked. And a lot of people have spent yeah. <laughs> their entire lives trying to perfect uh, what they've done once or twice. And so I think passion is a huge part of it. The other thing is I have a really simple uh, uh, platform or, or a simple way of going about getting my students to practice, and that is that I – I kind of refuse to work with them unless they hit the range at least once uh, before le- between lessons because I mm-hmm. want them to show that they've got uh, the ability to go and practice what they're learning. It's not something I've had a real problem with, uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think people generally, if they're going to spend money on lessons, then they're going to go practice. Um, and so I think that uh, that just my way of telling them that to at least get to the range once or twice in between lessons so that they can practice what we've mm-hmm. learned. I also give them video of all of our sessions that they can download on their phone. And I urge them to download the videos to their phone and take their phone with them to the range so that they can watch yep. what we were working on and to work on that particularly. Uh, we always, you know, we get busy in life and we forget things. And so you make it as easy as possible for them to retain that knowledge by, and practice it by using all the tech that we, we have available, and that's with video right now. And so I think those things are, are super important. Now, I do have students. Um, I work with a lot of juniors, uh, a lot of high school uh, players, both girls and, and boys, and they are some of the most passionate people on the planet. As adults, we can always take a lesson from, from children and from the youth. Uh, but they have such an eager, uh, de- such a desire and an eager desire at that in, to get better. And so they tend to, to go and hit the range five, six times uh, a week to work on the things that they're doing. But I always, you know, I fall back on the fact that just go and hit the range once or twice in between our sessions and if they want, can do that on a weekly basis, then I'll work with them on a weekly basis. If they're only doing that, you know, a few times a month, then I have no issue working with people once a month. It really, like you said earlier, it depends on whether or not their goals are to get on uh, and play competitively, uh, professionally, uh, whether they want to be a top amateur in their state, or whether they just want to go out and enjoy this game the way it should be played. Yeah, and and you know, it, again, this is where the communication is important as a as a teacher professional, um, you know, and or coach with your students is understanding the why. Why are they there? Are they just there to, you know, uh, to from a recreational standpoint, or are they wanting to be more competitive? And I think it's also important too. Um, well, which yeah, a lot asking of asking your students that, you know, I, I ask right. all yeah, of my it, students that, Ted, you know. Yep. Exactly, and that goes into your initial conversations with them. Is you know why are you there, and and you know what is it you're trying to accomplish? What are some of your short-term goals, and what are some of your longer-term goals? And if they're unclear of that, then that's a, a, a part of the discussion too that can take place is helping them find establish some goals. Um, so you know there's a lot of well, absolutely. Uh, the important thing is to establish that dialogue exactly. And um, you know this is something that uh, you know I think especially for some of our newer. Uh, golfers out there, I think that's a, a huge proponent is to get them engaged in conversation because 
you know, we can't be the ones just doing all the talking. We want them to be engaged and asking questions and, and, um, and being engaged in the sessions and wanting to, to, um, you know, and like you said, make it exciting, make it interesting. I think the more exciting and passion that you put into it and they see you doing, then they're going to be excited about it as well. And then they're going to start to see oh, uh, um, results. And we know, right, exactly. Yeah. I, I, um, I, you know, I, I always, I always start Ted with, with a couple basic questions with all of my students. And one of the questions that I always ask them is not just why they're there, but how long they played the game of golf. Where do they like to play the game of golf at? What courses do they play at? How long that they've played the game of golf? What their goals are with, with the game. And then I also ask them what other sports that they have played um, throughout their right. life. Because I think that it's important, especially with newer golfers, that if you can find another sport, tennis, baseball, etc., that they've played that has some similarities that you can draw uh, between the two, then all of a sudden you've got them back in their territory again. You know, you, you get somebody who's played a lot of tennis and you teach them how golf is very similar to tennis in the way that the body core yep. turns. And yep. you start talking that language with them, and now they're not so scared of it. Now they're not so scared of the game because even though they may not know much about it, they understand that there is similarities between that and other sports that they've played. And I, mm-hmm. I'll give you an interesting example. I was working with a, a junior. She plays on the local high school team. And she has never really played any other sports, but she was a competitive diver for quite a few years and has been working on that for about five, six years. And as we were, as we were kind of looking and, and trying to figure out ways to help her not only understand the game, but understand how important the, the hip turn, et cetera, is, um, she kept getting up on her, on her toes and she kept locking her knees. <laughs> And and so I used a, a, a simple ball, uh, a volleyball that I use, and I put it between her knees, and I said, okay, keep it here, keep your knees bent, and I want you to feel what it's like to actually hit a ball with your knees bent. And it was such a strange feeling for her as somebody who was a diver. Mm-hmm. She was used to straightening her legs and yep. getting up on her toes. And so we had to conquer that mm-hmm. before we could really start building a swing for her. And once she got the feeling of keeping her knees bent and hitting the hitting the ball, it was like a you know I always call it a light bulb moment. But it was her light bulb moment. Yep. It was that moment right. in time where she instantly realized that she was naturally doing what she was good at with with her diving move, but golf was different, and so we had to change that around and explain why it was different, and then get her to feel why it was different. And once she felt the difference. It was it was really simple at that point. She started hitting shots uh, that she was even amazed at. She kept turning around and looking at mm-hmm. me, going, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe that that went so far." And I said, "That's what this game's about." And so again, yep. building passion by creating similarities between what people have done before, and using very simple tools and drills that, um, especially dynamic drills, action action drills, where they're feeling where the body needs to be while they're hitting the ball are some of the most powerful drills you can do for a student because it allows yep. them to I understand could... what they need to do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it goes to the you know the point we mentioned earlier, I mean, with, with videos and so, so forth, you know, and I had this discussion earlier with the panel, 
um, before you came on, and we talked about one area was uh, the visualization. And not everybody learns visually, so it's important to be reinforced with feel and understanding how that feel is because then the visual makes sense. If you're not a visually uh, cued person, it's very difficult sometimes. I mean, you can show somebody something, but if they don't understand how it actually feels because they're not really uh, stimulated initially by visualization, um, sometimes that that line is is very uh, confusing for them. So doing those types of drills where they can actually now feel what's going on, then when they see a visual cue uh, that that correlates with that, it's easier for them to understand. So I agree. I think it's important. I think you know there's a lot of tools in the bag, if you will, that you can use uh, visual cues. There's uh, you know feel, if you will, um, and sometimes even just the right wording uh, can get that message across. And it's a matter of of you know talking with your students and finding out which works best for them and not just assuming that they all learn the same way because uh, as we've learned uh, over the years, they don't. Um, well, I hate to say this, Byron, but uh, we're actually out of time. Our time's coming to an end, and uh, I feel like we've only been on here for a short period of time, but we've actually been, went, been on here to, almost an hour. It's hard to believe it goes so fast. Yeah, yeah it's hard to believe it goes and, so fast, but that's, that's usually how most of our conversations go, Ted. So I know. We, actually, this is this is a short conversation uh, for you and I, uh, off air, we we've sometimes have have uh, probably set some records. I'm sure. Where I'm surprised we're not in the Guinness Book of World <laughs> Records uh, for phone calls. But it's always a pleasure, uh, Byron. You know, when you come on the show, and I want to make a quick note. Um, as I mentioned earlier, before you came on, um, you know, Byron is now involved with uh, my magazine, Golf Tips Magazine. He's now come on board as a senior editor, and he's also uh, uh, part of the. Uh, Golf Tips Magazine's Top 25 Instructors, so I'm excited to welcome aboard uh, with that. Very and as very excited to, we're not, about that. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you on board. And uh, there's a new issue that's uh, going to be coming out a little bit later on. I believe this month is actually when it's going to hit uh, the newsstands. I don't have the date in front of me, but uh, sometime later, I believe in September. And uh, uh, Byron, of course, uh, has submitted the, the cover uh, story, if you will, I think it's probably pretty obvious. You can imagine what he's going to be talking about, uh, but I'm going to save that as a surprise because I want you to uh, <laughs> either get out there in the newsstands and get a copy, or better yet, subscribe to Golf Tips Magazine. Go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe uh, and get uh, all six issues uh, in your hot little hands. There's some great tips in there, some great articles and great stories. Uh, and uh, as I said, um, Byron is now on staff as one of the senior editors and also as a Golf Tips Top 25 instructor. So he's going to be putting some great input, and he's uh, put together a, a great feature article for the next issue coming out later this month, so you want to make sure uh, you check that out at your local newsstand. But, uh, Byron, just uh, for the folks that are tuning in uh, and want to know the best way if they want to reach out, if they're in your area and they want to reach out, or I know you do some virtual stuff as well, what's the best way if they want to connect with you uh, to maybe get some help with their game? Yeah, you know what? I always urge people to go ahead and just call the office um, uh, and if uh, uh, leave a message if nobody answers. And that telephone number is 619-637-9742. Again, it's 619-637-9742. And then also go to uh, and check out my website. There's some wonderful videos. Uh, there's a link to my YouTube page, uh, which has videos of myself as well as my father. Um, and that's uh, ByronCasperGolf.com. And it's also under the same banner on my YouTube page, Byron Casper Golf. 
And again, there's some great videos and some great information that people can uh, learn out, learn a little bit about uh, my family and uh, some of the great things that my dad did throughout his career. And again, geez, if somebody is looking to get some lessons and wants to have a personal connection, feel free to reach out. Again, my number is 619-637-9742. And please leave a message if nobody answers because we are coming into a rather busy time uh, of the year with golf lessons. Perfect. Um, some great sound advice, and uh, I definitely recommend anybody listening, if they're particularly if they're out the uh, San Diego area, uh, you want to reach out to Byron, and I know that you uh, commute back and forth to uh, your uh, area yeah, Diego, in Utah as well. I was going to say in, in Utah, yeah. I was going to say right now uh, we won't be in back in San Diego for a few months, and so if you're anywhere in the Utah area or you want to do a hosted trip uh, to Utah or to San Diego, um, that number that I gave earlier is, is the number that you would call in order to inquire about that. Perfect. Well, Byron, thank you as always. I appreciate it. Um, always giving of your time, and I look forward to working with you, uh, not only uh, with uh, the magazine, uh, but also I know you're going to be coming on board and doing some great things through uh, my other new network, which will be coming out later this year, iGolf Sports Network. I'm excited about uh, doing some things with that as well. And I know uh, as things progress a little bit more in this month and, and everything uh, comes in, in line with golf nicks, uh, please let me know, and I'll make sure that I... Uh, I uh, let the folks know and remind them about that to check out that great product as well. Um, definitely something that they want to look into. So um, just keep Wonderful. me posted. Thank you, Ted. I appreciate it. And as always, my friend, uh, great catching up with you and glad that you were able to join me this evening on Golf Talk Live, and I will talk to you real soon. Great. Thank you so much, Ted, for having me. And to all the listeners, I, uh, I sincerely hope to have a, a personal connection with all of you whether it's through the magazine or through the Billy Casper Golf Academy. Uh, and, again, please feel free to reach out. There's nothing I like more than hearing great stories about golf, uh, whether they be about dad or the game itself, and love working with people. So thanks again, Ted, and it's been my pleasure. All right. Appreciate it, my friend. We'll talk to you real soon. All right. Thanks, Byron. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. That was my very special guest, Byron Casper. Uh, special guest of the evening, professional golfer and member of the International PGA and also co-founder of the Billy Casper Golf Schools. And as mentioned, he is now on staff as a senior editor with Golf Tips Magazine as well as one of the new top 25 instructors uh, for Golf Tips. So glad to have him on board. And uh, I really appreciate all that he has done for the game. And uh, as he uh, not only does his own thing, but helps to keep his father's uh, memory alive with the Billy Casper Golf uh, Schools and uh, Golf Academy. So uh, lots of great things happening in the Casper world. And uh, I want to uh, thank everybody for uh, for tuning in tonight. Also, again, a special thanks to Alex Fisher and Jamie Leno-Zimron for joining me earlier on the Coach's Corner panel. Always a pleasure, guys. And again, uh, welcome, Alex, to the uh, Coach's Corner family. I look forward to uh, you participating in some future uh, panel discussions as well. On that note, thank you, everybody, for joining me on this evening's uh, Golf Talk Live. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next Thursday with another uh, great panel and another interesting guest uh, that will join me here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody. Have a great uh, Labor Day weekend. Stay safe, everybody. Uh, take care, and uh, we'll see you next time on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast at Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com 
forward slash Golf Talk Live. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts or listen on any of the following social media platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.